You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from bulk metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Ben Grubbs, founder and CEO of Next10 Ventures. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited we get to do this. I wanted to start off and talk about your background and how you got your start in the digital media space. Sure. So I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, young age, kind of interested in media journalism, took the path to kind of just try each kind of platform medium out. So radio, newspaper, television, kind of also growing up in the Bay Area and having seen a lot of internet companies you know, kick off in the, in the uh, mid to late 90s, I also had interest kind of to get my hand in, in that space and that kind of being somewhat new and not really be around people that are that could actually claim like 10 years of experience where I would find that a lot in when I worked in radio or worked in television, also newspaper as well. So that was like the first thing I was just interested in the space, chance upon an opportunity to take a uh, summer internship in Singapore uh, where you actually get placed into a company. I asked, and this is actually through my, my school, so I asked like, hey, how's this going to work? And you in a bank and I don't want to work in a bank. How about I find my own job? And it's like, it's not how this works. And it's like, well, I'm paying. So they're like, well, if you want to do this, you have like two weeks and good luck finding yourself a job in Singapore. And so um, looked up, see, see who was there, happened to be at Yahoo office, found the number, cold called and said, hey, I'm coming out, pay my own way. You know, here's my CV. You know, these are the companies I've already worked in. And, you know, I had a byline in, in the newspaper. I was on, on air, on radio, you know, produced stuff in television writer, kind of editor for some live television segments. So not just like photocopy and copy lines, kind of to that point. Yeah, I think from there it was like, all right, you can come out. I don't think they actually had phone calls like this. And uh, so I had the, this summer, this is the summer of 2000. And um, so I worked on the launch of Yahoo Shopping, uh, worked on, they called it like emerging markets at the time. It was basically like Thailand, Philippines, and Malaysia. And all those like in, inbound leads coming from companies who, just felt like I have to advertise online. Everyone else seems to be doing it. And uh, so they said, hey, can you just take this stack of all these inbound leads and sift through on it? So I did that and actually managed to close like some deals. And I remember actually dealing with a Thai company who was like, you know, our English is not good. It's like, my Thai is terrible. So we decided to actually chat over Yahoo Messenger. And we negotiated an advertising deal over Messenger. <laughs> wow. Over text. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to that. I actually use that again later in my career yeah so at, at the end of the summer i was like having a great time and the conversation kind of moved into you know would i be interested to to stay and i saw the senior year of school to finish and so went back and accelerated my, my senior year and then came back in january of 01 and um was a lead for the yahoo broadcast business so i got to merge some of the work that i was already doing in television and production and with what at the time was the biggest video platform or business kind of on the internet broadcast.com which became yahoo broadcast and they got to do that in Asia, of all places. So that was really the, the whole start. Wow, what a story. So you shock the school administrators, find this job in Singapore in under two weeks, pack your bags and head over there. Why Singapore? What attracted you to the country? I have five older brothers, and um, I think maybe it's just that there's a little bit, I don't know how exactly what it was myself, but or just thinking back now, like I was doing things that were trying to be different. So my brothers would all go to school in California. I was the only one of the six to go to school out of state. 
they had all spent time living and working or studying in Europe. None, as I can recall, had actually experienced in Asia. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And so when the internship program, or yeah, when the, the, the summer program came up, the three options were Madrid, London, and Singapore. It was like, Europe, Europe, where is that? That's in Asia. I don't think I'd ever thought of Singapore until that point. And, uh, but I think that was really it. And so the, the setup was you get placed into a company, you live in a beach chalet, they have these photos of like boat key at night, looked really nice. I thought like, this could be a fun adventure for the summer. And I really thought like, I'll go in there, make a mark and like at the odd job. And then I'll, I'll, you know, finish up school and get like some reference, then go back and work in the Valley. That was the thought. And, uh, not that I'd actually go back to Singapore. And so when that opportunity came up, I still thought I'll go out there for a year, then I'll come back. That's what I remember telling my parents that. And I was out in Asia for 15 years. Wow. Um, so not planned, but I think as time kind of went on, what I kept finding is every time I came back to the U.S. for like a global conference, and I would interface with like U.S. colleagues, and we'd talk about different you know, roles, the impression I was going to have was like, okay, you're doing something very specific. And my job, in contrast, is like very broad. And like we have few people out in Asia, so we're just thrown into the deep end. And what I really enjoyed about that was just getting exposure to a lot of things at a very young age. And I think it kind of also worked to my benefit that being Caucasian in Asia, people always thought I was 10 years older than I was. And so I could find my way into you know, business settings and, and context that maybe here, it was just like, come on now, you just came out of school. Like you can't be the only person going and talking to that kind of company or someone at that level. I, mean, I used to write to senior level, like C-level people at some of these organizations, get the meeting. Uh, and one, you had the Yahoo kind of calling card. And then I would show up and they would look me up and down thinking like, wait, this is who the person is? <laughs> it's like, it's me. Yeah. And you roll with it. So I, I think it was a lot of just like learning by doing. And yeah, every time I would kind of come back, it was just like, no, I, I still think I actually have it better over in Asia. And I was just more of like, I want, I want to be a student. There's more things for me to kind of get exposure to. And if this is the place for me to actually go and do it, fantastic. Then that's going to kind of stay put. I would think after a while, it's like, I guess at some point I should probably come back to the States. But like when? And I thought like, all right, if, if there's an opportunity to have like a global role, but then I don't need to kind of say goodbye to all the Asia experience that I've kind of built up, you know, that could actually be good. That's ultimately actually what, what panned out. But um, you know, I worked at four different companies through the Asia stint. And you know, I think each time it kind of came up, it seemed to be like in a four-year cycle where you know I'd gone in kind of as like employee one or one of the first few, build something up, scale it, get some institutional knowledge. And then kind of around that, that point, someone would come knocking and say, hey, you know, uh, we're trying to do this new thing. Do you think you'd be interested in kind of come in and actually do it and um, start the process all over again? Go back to the start, go build up something, build out the proposition, build out a team, scale that, get to a comfort kind of level, and then you get tapped on the, the next challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And that was just it. So it just, again, not planned, but that's kind of how it, how it played out. Yeah. And what a fascinating time to be in Asia because in those two decades, right, or decade and a half that you were there, it's transformed significantly. And principally, Singapore has gone through this huge economic growth, this kind of cultural confluence and this renaissance of uh, activity that's happening there. And it's really become the hub for Southeast Asia. It's become kind of the gateway for, for the West into a lot of APAC. Yeah, I think when I first took the job with Yahoo, I think I actually I remember my, my school was 
the alumni folks were actually upset because they said I was going to drag down the median salary for graduates. Because I think the sing dollar at that time, I think it was like a 40% discount. So like the absolute amount is like, oh yeah, that's actually what a grad would get. But like, oh, but you're being paid in Singapore dollars. And so it's in US dollar equivalent, it, it's at, actually at that discount. And then when I moved back, uh, so like 15 years later, and with Google, initially, I remember HR here was actually trying to reduce my pay kind of at the similar kind of level. This was just the piece to me of like how far Singapore had come. And so in those 15 years, it would, and it's now regarded as the most expensive place to live in the world. The salaries have kind of jumped huge amounts. And it was just interesting to then come back to the U.S. And then, you know, in an organization like Google, it was like, yeah, yeah, but now we're going to pay you to the U.S. salary. And that's not at the level of the Singapore. Uh, I thought, wow, okay, yeah. Times have changed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Times have definitely changed. <laughs> and so in addition to your time in Singapore, you also spent some time in Hong Kong and right. obviously traveled the region extensively. What were yeah. some of your insights from spending so much time in Asia during that period? Uh, well, I think like the Hong Kong piece, and I was attracted to the market early on. And this, I mean, there's like an entrepreneurial spirit in that market. I just found it very infectious. And uh, just how you could talk to someone, hit on a good idea, and it's like, let's go. And then when I was in Singapore early days and definitely kind of building out a video streaming business with Yahoo and no one had really kind of done this before. And we focused more actually on the B2B side than the B2C. And so every company we kind of worked with, it was the first time that they were sometimes, you know, I don't know, they were already doing online advertising, but it was really the first time they're kind of doing online video. And I think with some, it was kind of like, well, can we see maybe three people do this first and case study it? And then I'll kind of jump in. Uh, and that was like the local kind of company mentality. And then you get to Hong Kong and it's like, no, this all looks good. And I want to get it now because I want to learn and I want to be ahead of everyone else. And so there is going to be some trial and error, but I don't want to wait for the case study because then it's probably too late. And I just see this play out in a lot of ways. And after five years initially in Singapore, and I was with eBay and the opportunity actually came up to, it was like, hey, we're going to go open up an office in, in Hong Kong. And I was putting my hand up saying like, I'd love to go there and I'll help hire and train the team or be part of that like that initial kind of group that is staffing up. So I took on a marketing role, which they approved. And then I remember the regional HR person said, in case you're not totally clicking on this, like you're going to take a marketing and PR job in a market where you don't read, write, or speak the language. <laughs> Your you know, Cantonese is enough to snuff. Like, oh, no, I'm fully aware of that. Uh-huh. And so it was like, yeah, you, you have two years and you need an exit strategy. Because once you hire and train that team and they're competent, you're back, you're value is going to dramatically decrease. Yeah. But that was also an interesting time for me is just being more of a database marketer. And so using the, the data and the insights from the eBay platform and actually learning a lot actually about the Hong Kong market that someone who had, was born there and grew up there, you know, might think about the market in one way. And then the data tells you actually in some ways the total opposite. Mm. And so I thought where I was providing a lot of value was, you know, the, the push on data mining, data insights, and letting some of that, that research uh, and insights actually inform kind of strategy versus just you know, having a hunch and kind of playing around that and kind of going forward. Yeah. Are there any examples that come to mind from you know, leveraging the data to make business decisions at eBay? Top of my head, I, I need to think about this a little bit. Sure. But, um, or anything that maybe contradicted the common sense or the cultural instincts of someone native to Hong Kong. Well, I think what I found a lot, talking to people external was um, they, they would always kind of go on about like the local market. And that was the first thought was buyer, the buyers and sellers both live in Hong Kong. And what the data was going to show in us was the cross-border market is actually the real opportunity and is the cash cow. 
And so, yeah, I think every time we, we were interviewing new people, no one seemed to get a hit on this cross-border piece. But then it's like, if you pull back a little bit, like Hong Kong is a trader economy and it's all about kind of cross-border trade. Yeah, it's, like, it's a huge is, port. It's, yeah, yeah. This is nothing new. And so in some ways, it's like, why wouldn't you then apply that into a digital business? Mm-hmm. But that is not what I recall we were seeing a lot as new people kind of come in. Even when we would talk to kind of marketing agencies, PR agencies, all their communication was always around the local piece. And we had to struggle with that and say like, no, 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 no. We actually really want to light the fuse actually on this this cross-border kind of opportunity. And when you talk with some of the sellers and it's like, look, I can get out of my apartment, go down to some MTR station, haggle with someone over this product that they already agreed to buy, but then it's a you know, they're heavy like negotiator. So even though I agreed on that price, I'm still going to try to get, I got you out of your apartment on, you, you had to take six MTR stops and like, you're not going to want to take this product back home. And then these sellers would just be so upset of like super waste of time. I could just stay home, you know, sell to 20 buyers in the UK, they'll pay me on PayPal and all good. And so I'm going to make far more money that way. So like forget even dealing with this local market. So we saw, it, you get that context kind of later talking with them, but you you saw a lot of the signals earlier on. And so it was like, well, how much do we want to then just keep pushing this domestic play, which is what eBay was really known for all around the world, or do we kind of lean in with what we actually really think is can be a core strength, and that's the cross-border side. And that was also, I think, my first kind of introduction to working with young entrepreneurs, people coming out of their college dorm room, and then within like a year or two, having very substantial multi-million dollar businesses and employing 50 or 100 people, but building a business on top of the eBay platform and thinking about branding, differentiation, customer service, the whole product mix. And so you just, you get this like amazing kind of deep dive of, of building the business front to back. And it's coming from someone who's 22, who we weren't actually informing really. In any, like they were teaching us more. I think we were teaching them. And scaling something really fast and global. That was a, I think also the first time I think that a lot of colleagues and I, we talked with each other and we're like, we're on the wrong side of this. Like we're watching all this stuff kind of occur. And like, there's a lot of value being created over there. But then also eBay was generating a lot of value as well through that market. So um, anyway, good time. But to your earlier question, anyway, I think on the the Asia pieces, I mean, I, I, I think I traveled everywhere, but North Korea, East Timor, and Brunei. I hit every other country in the region. Uh, did business in, in most, actually, all, I think all almost all the other you know, markets that I didn't talk about. And um, yeah, I think it's just a, a big kind of contrast as you go, you know, from the north and Japan all the way down to like New Zealand, or kind of then west over to like India, Pakistan. Uh, what I was seeing a lot is I think a lot of innovation. It's some forward thinking, kind of in the North Asia markets, and innovation I always found ahead of the U.S. like by years. I find that too when I travel, right? The U.S. is so far behind in banking, so far behind in uh, kind of the Wi-Fi and broadband internet speeds. We're kind of far behind in a lot of the mobile app ecosystems in a lot of ways, especially compared to the Chinese market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you see stuff there for you know, years, uh, and then it kind of starts to really get adopted here in the states, and then it kind of flows back into then like the southern part of Asia, so Southeast Asia, India, Australia. Why do you think that is? Is the U.S. just heavily regulated or is there just too much kind of institutional inertia that it's hard to move the ship? 
some of these markets, it goes down. It's the infrastructure, and because the infrastructure is in in a way, you're forced to innovate with a business or with a, a service or some practice that maybe here in the U.S. the the infrastructure and the fundamentals are different. And so, in you know, I think in the gaming space where there's this rampant piracy, there was an earlier push there to move the model into or away kind of from console and you know, pay to download into free, free to play, play. and yeah. I'll monetize it and through, purchases. through and have, yeah, yeah. Through the virtual Micro goods. Transactions, yeah. And that was being adopted way earlier in Asia mm-hmm. you know, than it was here here in the US. And it then also kind of an acceptance then of digital goods, virtual currency, and then that then spills over into other fields. And so then it's almost like a decade ago now when you know, I was coming across a company in Korea that actually was focused on live streamers and the way that they were earning money, these people were converting Korean won into kind of virtual currency, buying gifts. And it's like, I want to send you some flowers. That's uh, all just done you know, virtually. And that cost a person $50. And back then, as I recall, like some of these top creators on that platform are earning half a million US dollars a year. This is a decade ago. And, uh, and I think it was only like a couple of years ago, it was really getting talked up here in the States over live streaming, virtual goods, and that kind of gifting kind of economy. Which is like what we have on Twitch today, right? Yeah. But it's, ha- it's happened on all these other platforms in Asia for a decade now. Yeah. So, for, so I think like, yeah, then co- going back, I think around that time, you know, I, I made a concerted kind of push to think about how she had to go build out teams in parts of Asia where uh, I kind of consider to be innovation centers. So Korea, I think there's a lot of stuff kind of going on there with gaming. I want to kind of be closer to that. And so made a, a push to actually put staff on the ground there so we can also be better connected also to that ecosystem of the different partners and get things out of there that then we can then spill over to to other parts of Asia. And I think also early on, I remember hearing from the Singapore government there's this whole pitch of like, you know, base yourself in Singapore and it's a great pilot market, you know, four million at the time, now over closer to like six million, six to seven million kind of residents. But back in the early 2000s, like four million people, island economy. And so it was like, uh, yeah, this, this like test bed. And I had not been in Asia long enough to actually kind of realize this, but it's like, that is totally false. And like, if you go build something in Singapore and find success, like that's not any predictor of how that's going to work in Vietnam. Not at all. And uh, so then it's just like, no, I think you need to be active in these other markets and in these economies. And I think for far too long, actually, when I was in Yahoo, we just really kept our, our center in Singapore uh, and didn't really venture off into these other Southeast Asian markets. And those are the markets today that are absolutely thriving. And then also to just see this much later when I came into Google and to see the business that Google has like in a, in a region like Southeast Asia that is just orders of magnitude bigger and what we thought was like the upper limit when I was at Yahoo of like what we think this can kind of be. And then to see what Google is doing today, it's just like, it's, it's mind-blowing. Far surpassed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much there that I'm excited to dig in and unpack. One thought that came to mind is you talk about how in these emerging markets that they can skip entire generations of technology. We've seen that in Vietnam. We do a lot of business there. We have an office in Ho Chi Minh. And one of the primary viewing habits for video is now on mobile. And so people don't have cable TV, they use smart TVs and they throw or they cast from their mobile device onto their TVs at home. And so they've leapfrogged this entire generation of technology that we have huge infrastructure for in the US. I think in some ways YouTube's had good success in parts of Asia, like Southeast Asia or Japan, where the cable kind of satellite market is really kind of installed at like 30% household penetration. So it's not mainstream. And so, like in Vietnam, if you don't have 
a cable satellite, then you're getting state-run television. Some of these other markets, you, know, you have a limited selection of free-to-air, and, and even in watching some of the stuff that they kind of put out in English, then it's you just get into this, this global syndication kind of market. So then where YouTube kind of comes along, and all you need is a mobile device and Wi-Fi or a data plan you know, from that aspect, and then you're getting access to a, a wider variety. And I find early days when I was in the company, back in like 2012, a huge consumption of like Korean dramas through YouTube in Southeast Asia. I remember doing focus groups in Jakarta with some teenagers and they were talking about how they would go on Twitter and actually find the show synopsis, read that, and then go watch the whole episode and it was all in Korean. And they were kind of like, I have the gist of what this episode kind of is. Uh, but they weren't otherwise getting served that through linear television. And then kind of you know, get more of that adoption on the consumer side I think now what we're kind of seeing in these markets is you have enough of a, of a consumer kind of foundation that it, it's worthwhile then for creators to actually come in you know, natively to these platforms and then be programming locally for the market. And so I think yeah, in the way, because the television kind of ecosystem never really got past 50% in you know, household distribution, there was always this desire for diversity. And I think where digital platforms like YouTube have come in is they've given the consumer that choice and diversity. But now also there's a whole new realm of kind of content and formats that you don't even, even see television that you're actually now seeing online that's like super serving that's like under 25 demo and then those markets like a quarter billion people under, under the age of 25 it's like massive market to kind of play into that are going to continue to kind of age up that's what makes us very excited actually about the region why we have an office in singapore why we you know, want to continue to kind of be active there not only that there's a lot of innovation I think just like local market, there's a lot of opportunity there. But then to what I kind of saw before, kind of at eBay, not across border. And it's interesting that the traditional TV mentality was that this type of content wouldn't travel outside the country, right? Who would think Korean dramas would be popular in Indonesia, right? Let alone in Korean. And we found that that myth was you know, very much dramatically refuted when you had services like Vicky or Drama Fever, which Warner Brothers acquired, uh, demonstrating that. And then, of course, all that content ends up on YouTube and these other kind of AVOG platforms, too. So it's interesting that some of these countries ended up with strong cultural export value as a result of the content that they were producing becoming popular outside their countries. Korea is a great example of that. You know, Japan has ambitions to kind of grow its efforts there. And the U.S. obviously exerts huge cultural in, uh, influence as a result of the media that we export. Do you see that dynamic changing, or is there ambition for other countries, particularly in Asia, to influence the world economy through media? Well, I think Japan has, like, cool Japan. So I think they've definitely seen what Korea has been able to build through like, entertainment content, drama content, music content as yeah. well. K-pop yeah, taking over U.S. charts now. Yeah. yeah, so robust across parts of Asia, Latin America, EMEA, and, and North America. And there's always kind of been a non-resident Indian NRI kind of market. And um, I think kind of before that was all kind of served through cable and satellite. You have your, your base package that you pay extra money for some like Star Plus, you know, channel, and then get, you know, Hindi content coming from India. A lot of content now is just on like digital VOD uh, platforms or just on YouTube. And um, is there a concerted push in a lot of these different countries the same way like Korea has kind of built out? I've seen that only so much from a country government level out of Japan. Like, I guess the aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. And then I, I know it does exist kind of in, in China as well. I wasn't as close to it, you know, when I was at, at YouTube. 
since we weren't really operating in China. Let's talk about that a little bit more, about the relationship with China, particularly when you were at eBay in Hong Kong and contrasting that potentially with your time at YouTube, because obviously Google and, and YouTube don't play nice with China and are blocked there today. Is eBay blocked in China or was it accessible? Yeah, no, no. So e e eBay actually acquired the number one e-commerce site, EachNet. This is in the early 2000s. And eBay is a global platform. And uh, the M&A strategy back then was you know, the business that you've acquired that was like the local leader in auctions and e-commerce would then migrate over to the common eBay platform. So that's what was done before. So it was like, why not do that again in China? And so during that transition, when EachNet was actually moving over to eBay, that's when Jack Ma cleverly launched Taobao. And EachNet at that point, and like the eBay model elsewhere, as a seller, you paid money to the platform to list goods. And he decided, I'll play the long game, and I'm not going to charge the seller. And so eBay actually had, I think, a, a bumpy kind of migration of you know consumers and users from each net over to the core eBay platform. The products actually weren't exactly kind of the same, different you know, UI and uh, the user experience you know, from, from that. But eBay was always kind of in the market, and uh, but really did kind of see ground and ne never caught up. And then, you know, when I was at uh, Turner, you know, we had no broadcast channels widely distributed in China. You know, you have CNN available in, in hotel rooms, but that's kind of it. And uh, you could syndicate some of the content. Uh, so Warner Brothers would actually sell content through to some broadcast channels or to you know, Yoku, Tudo, some of the online video sites. But where we actually, we did two things. One was we actually partnered with a gaming company uh, on the kids' side for Cartoon Network. And we kind of thought we would lead through gaming IP rather than video uh, and actually start to kind of build out presence that way. So that was an interesting kind of adventure on, on that front, actually getting kind of a corporate partnership actually solidified in China and then getting uh, the corporate brass in New York uh, to sign off on that. Uh, Especially at this time. When was this? 2009, 2010, oh, okay. wow. I think. Yeah, around that time. But um, And then the other thing we did was... Uh, through a joint venture uh, that we actually had with a Hong Kong company that acquired the uh, assets to a IP that was developed by a college student um, on her uh, Cena blog. There's a rabbit character called Tuski. And, um, and then when she graduated from school, she relocated from Beijing down to Hong Kong and worked at the, the Turner office in Hong Kong. And so there was a, it was kind of an R&D kind of experiment, I think, in a way, like what we would spend making a TV pilot. This is kind of what we spent on, on this. But here it was, it was IP that was actually homegrown in China online and it was already kind of getting consumer traction. So I think a lot of us actually found it quite fascinating that it's like, this didn't start as a television or film property and then moves into kind of digital. This is digital first. And then we are kind of broadly a TV company. The goal wasn't like, let's make this thing into a TV show. But we did kind of spend time building out a five-year franchise plan and then to see kind of like, where could we take this? How could we get this to some kind of level where there would be a consumer engagement or some consumer would, you know, go spend $50 for something related to this IP and feel that that was a good value exchange. Uh, so how, how can you build that emotional connection and, and, and residence there? And yeah, those, those are some of the earlier thoughts. And you know, the IP is now, it started 2007, so it's 12 years on. And has had a lot of development over time. And the creator, she now lives here in the States, uh, was the first person from mainland China, actually, to get her MFA from uh, Caltech, the animation program. Now with the Illumination working on a new feature. 
amazing. Yeah, so it's like she's had a really interesting journey, but I think for us, it was good because I think for us as like a digital team, like we, we were in first position. That that was like one of the few times I can kind of remember where we actually had that, where we didn't need to wait for colleagues like working on a TV or film property to do their thing, and then it would kind of come over to us. We were kind of at the center and setting that kind of path, and if it felt like, hey, the opportunity is going to go into consumer products, let's go into consumer products. If it you know, is going into future film development, well, yeah, we're going to go drive it into, into that path. But, like, we're really at the at the planning table for that. Did Turner do much of that, thinking about digital first or digital native franchise development? No, I think that, I think that was the only one mm. I can kind of recall. But um, I, mean, I, I worked on this with, um, there was a, a series, uh, Bed 10, that was actually quite, quite successful. And when I came in, the IP was really, really strong consumer products-wise in international markets and with the 10-year-old character and the studio here in L.A. And with the network, I actually decided to age up the character to a 15-year-old. And I remember sitting in a management meeting and the colleagues on the consumer products side were really upset because like, the market's actually the 10-year-old, not the 15-year-old character. And I was still fairly new at the time, but I ran up and it was just like, hey, um, maybe it's a silly question, but... Uh, could I actually have creative license? And if you guys don't want to tell the story in these season missing five years in television, can I tell them in, in digital? And no one said yes, but also no one said no. <laughs> That's and, important. And I had a colleague who caught that. And as we were walking out, he was like, you realize no one actually said no. I was like, oh, no, I caught that. Uh, so I was like, so what are you going to do? And what we ended up doing was uh, working with the writers here in L.A., worked on the show. They uh, we, we paid them to kind of give us a... Um, a, a treatment or a story arc for what those missing five years in the television storyline were, were all about. And then we adapt that actually into a, a multiplayer game. And the idea was like, as you progress through the levels in this game, the story unfolds. And so I was like, okay, we're not going to tell it in a, in a linear television animated format. It's going to be told in this you know, immersive, interactive game environment. And so it was also like, what does that look like? I don't know. So let's try it. And then you know, that storyline ended up actually getting adapted into a TV movie, which then actually came full circle and became the next iteration of the TV series. And the name of our game became the name of that iteration of the TV series. So it was like, in some ways, I would say digital informing the kind of core traditional business. And, you know, we, see all, we saw this in other things with games where we would have, we would have games, actually, we'd have the whole stable of characters from the network. And we would see a lot of fan engagement where it's like you're choosing that character as your avatar or in the community kind of comments, you're talking about, you know, characters and shows in a certain way that, that shows a lot of affinity. And I kind of recall prior to that, like we didn't have a lot of signals to know that like there actually is an audience that cares about this show that we, didn't, we haven't aired for like eight years. Uh, we, actually, we have it in the library. We have all the rights to actually go put it back on. And I remember going back to some folks in the TV programming department and kind of sharing this, and they kind of just dismissed it. And we come back to this now, and I think there's a lot of businesses that are a lot more attuned to you know those kind of consumer signals and can adapt and kind of move quicker. But what a great approach, right? Digital should absolutely inform the traditional strategy. It's a cheap and quick test ground for these new ideas and filling in the gaps in programming, but also identifying the audience insights that can help you leverage back catalog or kind of advance the idea in some way. Well, and I, and I saw this then then coming to YouTube, and then uh, later when I was working on YouTube Kids and actually some of the original programming for YouTube Kids and helped actually 
get over half a dozen original shows produced out of Asia. But through that process, I was getting more exposure into that development. It, what what a studio would actually go through to kind of develop for television. And I was kind of contrasting this actually with what I was seeing on YouTube. And so I you know, go to conferences like MIP in France and I would meet some producer who was shopping a show and then you go back the next year or the next year and it's like, wait, three years later, like you're still shopping the same show. Uh, you're trying to raise you know, 10 to $15 million and it's hard to kind of find one buyer it's back then it was, and I think it's still the case now. And some, some areas actually go and take the whole thing, or if they do, they own all the rights. And then on the other side, I was kind of finding people on YouTube that were making shows, and maybe some people don't call them shows, but they were shows, like episodic and developing kind of characters in different ways, and not kind of constrained to the linear television format of like, it's got to be a half hour or 22 minutes, and, or it's got to be an eight minute or 11 minute kind of elemental, and it's like, no, I'm going to make it three or two, but this one's going to be 60 seconds. And I'm going to kind of you know dabble with this, and I'm going to kind of get all these, these signals in 24 hours, and it's absolute. It's not you know a television. It's not a panel, uh, which is actually what you get from TV. You get this you know sample base of. I remember this like in the Philippines. It was something like you know, less less than 5,000 homes in the whole market. I want to say it was actually in the hundreds. Were the kind of Nielsen box or Comscore, you know, attempting to measure and then extrapolate that out to model what all of the Philippines Correct. are thinking. Yeah. I'm like, wow. I mean, now that I'm getting exposure to all this data on YouTube, that's one-to-one. I'd like, much rather have the one-to-one data, and you're, you're seeing different things there. So that was a part I, I got kind of fascinated with, is like how with far less money, you can go and test things out, get a read much quicker, and if it's actually clicking, then scale it. Then it is to go spend three years, put a lot of money and effort into this thing, and in that market as well, I'd find that while a lot of these guys are not, they're not doing it for the primary reason to get, go make a margin on production. They're doing it so that ideally this thing moves into consumer products. Yeah, it feeds the licensing business, it feeds theme parts. Something. Yeah. It's like okay, that, that whole thing that is like a five-year journey. And then you can see some stuff now kind of picking up in digital and do that in 12. You can, find it, you can get to the same conclusion in 12 months with a lot less capital. And you could keep more ownership. So over and over, I was thinking like, why are more people just doing this? So those are the principles that you sought to apply when you joined Google and YouTube. So you you leave Asia, you come back to the States, and you're in this global head of creators role. Tell us a little bit more about your mandate there. You mentioned focus on YouTube kids, but what were some of the things that you tackled during your time at YouTube? Well, I, initially, I came in to go and market YouTube in Asia, and more specifically, kind of market YouTube and help grow the creator ecosystem. And uh, so I kind of likened that back to when I was at eBay, and I was actually in a marketing role as well there. We were kind of supply side seller focused. And a lot of my colleagues elsewhere in the world were demand and buyer focused. So they would get all the buyers to the platform. And so what we we just found was far more efficient or better use of our capital and our resources in the markets where I was to focus on that cross border trade. So I think through that, you know, we, we had to go find young entrepreneurs who we would kind of make the pitch of like, you can actually make a living or more than make a living, you can actually build a business and you can employ a lot of people on top of this eBay platform. And then coming over to YouTube, that was kind of the same thing. Initially was, you can make a living or you can actually make some money Then you can actually make more money and actually this can become a full-time job. And then, but I think in those early days, 2012, like we weren't even saying company yet. We were just like, you can just make some money. And I think what we wanted to kind of build diversity with was a lot of the traditional media content. So unlike the US and a lot of parts in Asia, YouTube was actually getting full episodes or the, the entire channel from these broadcasters. 
and it was operating as like a Hulu or a, as a catch-up or a counter-programmer. So if you only have one TV in your household and you got four members in the household, well, one person gets to choose what's on TV. In India, that's most likely the mother, and so you get soap operas in prime time. You know, the husband and the kids want to watch something else. They go to YouTube for that. So there was ready availability, I think, of this larger kind of budget broadcast content. And but I think the piece was, is like, well, then we need to push and actually go build up this native digital kind of creator ecosystem where maybe here in the U.S., because the dynamics were, were different, this was kind of happening more organically and just frankly more advanced. So that was like the initial kind of scope was developing kind of marketing programs. And so I worked on the kind of formation of an event called YouTube Fan Fest, which still runs today in uh, a lot of markets kind of around the world. But that was an attempt to try to show in person, I think, what was so unique and special about what was occurring kind of on the platform with digital creators. And a lot of my friends in the market were marketers in Asia and when I came over to YouTube, we're like, oh, cool, we finally know someone that's there. So tell us what's going on and what are we kind of missing? And But I'd also hear more of the way they refer to it is UGC. I wasn't hearing so much of the term influencer yet, but it's more like UGC, which just had a connotation of like, it's cheap, it's amateur. And what I was already kind of seeing is like, no, this is not like that. So I think you need to kind of get that, like some of the consumers that you're trying to market to, this is actually, they respond very, very well to these creators. And so the idea was like, well, if I can, put this all in the same room and I can put you in the back and put the fans like in the front and then put these creators actually up on stage. Like this should slap you over the, you know, the, the, the head and makes it real to them. Yeah. Absolutely. You, should, you should wake up and be like, ah, yeah. th- th- this is where the market's going to go. Which is great because it brings the fans and the creators together. So there's a, you know, facilitating that conversation, but at the same time demonstrates to the marketers, this is where your audience is, right? This is where the value of your future consumer lives today. Yeah. And also like, I think at that time, I mean, I knew that there were a lot of creators who actually wanted to travel around Asia, but then it's like, well, how do you get actually how do you get this done? Who could kind of produce it? And so that was the other thing of like, well, this program actually becomes kind of your tour stop in in a way. And then I think the other part was like, how do we help build a community and cross pollinate? So you came in because like, you know, there's 15 people on the roster or on the bill, and like that's like you like that person and that person, but then you just got exposed to two other people. And in that first year, we studied that. So we asked people as they came out, like, who do they come here for? And who was like one creator that they kind of came away with and think like, I'm not going to go subscribe to that person's channel. And then we followed up and actually studied each of the channels and actually see like, are they saying this or does the action actually follow through? And they, they, they aligned really, really well. And so there really was like new discovery of new people through that kind of live event format, which is really interesting. I think the other part, though, was I think also just organizationally, there's a lot of people like in the company that had not yet been exposed to this. And so they were kind of drinking the Kool-Aid. And it was like, whoa, there's something really special kind of going on here because they were in Asia. They had not gone to an event like VidCon yet. And there was there was no live event experience where they would see this at that scale. That was a lot of fun to kind of be a part of that and to kind of get that, like, I would say more of a foundational effort off the ground. And then, but it's like, ah, I didn't come here to actually go run events. And so I, I wanted to kind of move on to something else. And that's when the opportunity kind of came up to move into content and be part of the group kind of overseeing education, news. And then there was talk at the time of like, hey, we're going to go launch a new product called YouTube Kids. And I was like, I definitely want to be a part of that. Um, having young kids and seeing their own kind of media consumption and habits change. And I was like, this is going to be a journey. And I'd love to kind of be, you know, at the table kind of as part of that. 
What was the original ideation behind YouTube Kids? Well, just the fact that parents like me, you know, had phones and devices, tablets at home, and kids were, I mean, I was, I was not forcing my kids, you know, onto these devices. They were finding their way kind of on or pestering me kind of on it. <laughs> and you, know, you just quickly find that, like, there is little kind of a affection or less affection for television and or the, the, the linear kind of program aspect of, of television so not so much watching it on the big screen um just waiting for the show on at like 6 30 and it's just like that and then the, then the content's different and so that's also why i saw early days like preschool content i was like Man, you've been watching the same video every day for six months and i think back to like when i was at turner there was this belief of like once i show it to you you're not going to want to watch it again you know cannibal I, so i can never pre-launch things digitally because the idea was, I will cannibalize the, the TV premiere and, and the TV. Yeah. And then what I saw here was like, no, actually, they'll just, re if they like it, they'll watch it again and again and again. Which in my era, like, I think we have VHS tapes back in my parents' house that are so worn out because just like that, I watched the, the video every day. Right, and it's the equivalent now that you can rewind and watch that same video on YouTube or you know on another kind of mobile destination. It's really easy for kids to have that viewing pattern. Yeah, so I think one was like it, it's already occurring, and so then it's like, well, how do you actually build a, how do you build a better user experience and for that segment because it's not really being addressed through the main app, and uh, yeah, so the, the the UX and UI of the main app is not conducive for someone under the age of eight. Right, someone who uh, doesn't know how to speak or type yet, or who can't spell, yeah, yeah so who can't search. And if you're trying to make you know the Google mission of making you know, information universally accessible, well, you're not. You're you're failing on that. And so yeah, how then do you have a product that a key part of the you know, discovery, uh, if it's through search, is voice search. And so and I would find this like where my child would kind of out of frustration like you know scream something what they wanted. They would know what they said. And I was like, this is amazing. I, I couldn't even understand what they said. Like, how, how did you pick that up? Uh, and then you get the video, and then there's like delight, and the panic is kind of gone. But um, yeah, so I, I think there was there was an understanding of a kind of a, a problem or kind of a need in the market. You can go off and actually solve that, and yeah, then kind of taking that kind of market by market by market. I was also just personally really interested in the ecosystem impact. And just from having spent time kind of at Turner, working in kids media there, and then just seeing where the consumer market had moved, but feeling like the, the businesses like Turner had not moved as fast as the consumer market had kind of adapted. And so YouTube seemed better positioned uh, to like where consumers actually really were. But then it was like, well, then what does this market ecosystem need to look like? And then how could this also be different? So uh, there's going to be winners and losers. So if this is the new kind of dynamic, there's new players now that don't have this like legacy television business. And I remember early days when I was in Asia, uh, I actually kind of took the, the the view of I'm not going to focus my time and attention on talking to you know Viacom, Nick, and Disney, and my ex colleagues at Turner Cartoon. I'm actually going to try to build out a whole new space of new creators and entrepreneurs. And we spent a lot of early time in those early days evangelizing what where we thought actually this was going to go, and this is going to become actually a really big market. And it was, if this is a space that you think is, or no, it's a space that we think is actually worth your time, your energy, and even your, your own capital investment. And we're not going to send you down some wild path of like, this is something we really need. And so please go do it for our needs. Like we generally think this is actually going to be a good kind of business growth opportunity. 
And we had a lot of folks kind of dive into that, that then were not thinking about YouTube as like secondary, but more as primary. And so that was the place that they were trying to build. They were really kind of focused on a lot of those direct consumer insights, using the data kind of to inform that. And then things can kind of you know, venture off into kind of other channels. I think that that was also, I, I found a lot of kind of benefit or kind of joy of being a part of that and then kind of seeing a lot of these new companies kind of start up where it's just a handful of people. And then, you know, now it's like they're employing, you know, hundreds of people and their primary distribution is still digital. Uh, or platforms kind of like YouTube. So been through that kind of journey. And then, yeah, the opportunity came up to come back to the States and then take on the global role. And so going back to the early part of my kind of career journey, it's like I didn't really had an end date on like the Asia. I mean, I want to cancel out that I actually go back to Asia at some point. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing kind of came up and it's like, well, here's an opportunity to go into a global role, focus on kind of creators. I think at that time, things that kind of moved from when I came in to really try to evangelize this aspect of the, the market to now we're actually kind of feeling that it's like you're really kind of at the center where so many parts of the business all wanted to kind of get your time and work with you because they were either they're building product or they're engineering things or uh, working on policy, uh, working on marketing strategies and the creator was kind of at the crux of all of this. Yeah. So and they so needed was, your insight into the use cases. I was like, and, and you're the guy managing this global team that's working with the top creators on the platform. So yeah, how do I get your time to kind of walk you through this new kind of product feature that I'm, I'm developing? Or, you know, we're you know, looking at kind of evolving some policies. And so again, want to get kind of feedback on this, or we want to get into the room with, with creators. Yeah. I remember thinking for a long time, kind of in my career, kind of just being in Asia, you were kind of playing on the on the edges of things. Like you're not really at the core because every company I worked for was like an American-based business and headquarters is here. This was the time where I was like, okay, this is a lot more kind of at, at the center. That was kind of intriguing to me. And then I also just think, you know, from the early days kind of working with creators, you know, at YouTube, but kind of before that, some of the work I was doing with the people like Momo, the creator out of China that I was referring to earlier. Yeah, just saw a lot of kind of growth, growth prospects. And I think to kind of spend more of my time here and to do things kind of globally as like your day job versus like when I was in Asia, kind of prior to moving here, I was consulting a lot of U.S. creators, helping some actually write business plans for their business ventures that were off of YouTube. And I was just doing that more as like a personal favor. And now that's come to be almost entirely what you focus on here. Well, that, time, huh? well that was the original thing. Of yeah. like, why don't you come here and then kind of make this your day job and then do this on a global level? It's like, sounds good. Sounds great. And uh, I think as stuff, you know, you start to kind of play things out, you are ultimately kind of working on behalf of the platform. And then, but if you're going to get deep into, you know, to the weeds of a creator kind of on their venture, like you kind of want to separate your, the mindset of like you're there as the platform and actually you're there as like the real business partner to that creator venture. And so I think you would start to see some conflicts over that, or it's like, okay, I have money to invest but I need to tie it back to something on YouTube and because that's who I am or the company that's actually employing me and where this money is actually kind of coming from. And then you can come into situations where it's like, well, no, actually what I want to do is this other piece that actually doesn't exactly kind of tie into YouTube. Uh, so it's like, well, that doesn't kind of tick the box for investment program that I have right now and, and, and what you're kind of doing. So that was a part of like, well, I see what you're trying to do. I totally get it, buy into it. So if we're not going to act on this, like, who do I refer you to? And as I would kind of look around and it's like, I don't know where this goes. Then I would talk to ex-colleagues from 
uh, Yahoo, eBay days who were now investors and at different VC firms. And they would ask me from time to time, like, what are you seeing being at Google? You must have a pretty interesting purview of, of opportunity. And I kept thinking this, uh, I was like, I don't get it. Like influencers. And it's like, no, these are, these are actually entrepreneurs who have influence. It's like a lot of other people have influence and you know, they, they've incubated something on their own dime that already is a multi-million dollar profitable business. It just is not structured as such. It's not staffed as such. Uh, as like a standalone kind of piece, but nothing to say that it couldn't become that. It's going to need some more planning and, and a roadmap and, and things like that. And so, yeah, because it's maybe not all organized. I mean, I look at this as like, it's not that there was an opportunity there, value creation opportunity. So someone has to then kind of get in. And I then thought like, well, I don't really said for what we should do is just be a pure investor, like actually having more of an operator. And so at a high level, I think the way you know, we're thinking about our kind of, like we're a venture group kind of focused on the creator economy. And I think like the three main kind of business lines that, that we're working across right now, one way I kind of think about this is like where we invest and kind of deploy capital, it's about ideation and who it comes from. And so on one lane, we have ideation that actually starts here. And so I've actually brought in people who are operators who have worked in companies like I've actually worked in You and you have a lot of experience kind of building, scaling product, managing brands, and going from there. And so there's some things that, like, we can start that process. And we can take all of our uh, our informed kind of point of view from, from where, we, where we've been, but then also understand that a lot of these platforms have enterprise layers. And, like, they're not going to be doing everything themselves and all in-house. And I face this myself, kind of being at Google and YouTube, there's certain things that I was trying to incubate. Like, you know, I got FanFest off the ground, kind of building it as a venture, but that was hard. And I initially got it off the ground actually with zero money from YouTube. I convinced a third party to actually put in the capital. Uh, and I just knew that if I was asking for money from the company, it was just going to get nitpicked to death. And it was just to a point where like, ah, I just don't want to do it. So my path was like, I'm going to get money from someone else. And someone obviously, I need to get approval to use the brand. But that was my way of trying to navigate the system. Is like I knew it, I think it was like less than six months into the company at that time. So I was still figuring things out. But like once we got that through and call that like the pilot case, I think everyone else, like I remember around me kind of woke up. They're like, this is fantastic. We should be doing more of these. I was like, great. Like six months ago, you guys were telling me not, not like drop this. And uh, so you were starting to recognize these needs during your time at YouTube. What ultimately prompted you to take the leap and say, I'm going to go found Next Ventures and focus on this exclusively? Uh, I mean, it's a collection of, I mean, people like, you know, I'd, I'd worked with or supported, there's a handful of people where, you know, stuff like, when, when are you going to stop working for companies and building new things inside of companies and go do it once for yourself? Uh, or it was like, you know, I'd, I'd like to support you and invest, but I can't do it if you work at Google. But then there are some others that actually help introduce and, and, and get set up actually on some investment deals that worked out quite well for them. But they kind of came back and said, hey, that was Rather kind, and I know you just did it as a favor. Well, let's um, do it again. Yeah, let's, let's all let's make some money. Yeah, yeah, let's do it again. And I, yeah, I, I, I actually want to financially incent you. So how can I encourage you or incent you to move out of Google so you can actually be in a in a capacity or a vehicle where you could participate? And so it was a number of people in a company over time. And uh, I think when you kind of hear this stuff enough, it's like I do need to actually take take a beat and think things through and process it. And also, if like if it's not the path, then then let's just be clear. And I'm going to say no, and here's why, and I'm not going to regret it, and move on. But I think the number of times it kind of came up, and it was 
maybe the same thing as like, I never thought I was going to be an agent for 15 years. And there's also like, well, am I always going to be working in these American media tech companies and operating more as the entrepreneur? Or for once, actually, would I kind of go down the entrepreneurial path? And um, had you ever considered yourself an entrepreneur before when you were younger? Or, I mean, certainly you were entrepreneurial in, in these roles, but was there any experience or any other kind of thought you had about doing something like this before? Well, I, I think one thing was, I mean, I, 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 you know, I started like media journalism like, formally probably like when I was like 14, you know, just cold calling, just like Yahoo. So called up the newspaper. How do I be a writer? Excuse me? How do I be a writer at the newspaper? And it's like, what have you ever written before? Written for my like junior high school paper, but actually ended up getting a staff job, got paid. And then same thing, called up the radio station in San Francisco. How do I become a, you know, how do I work on the show? Uh, and that kind of got me into television. And you know, when I was 19, actually I was working at, at a TV company in San Jose. And I was just curious, like how they actually kind of green light new shows. And I talked with the, the president at the time. I think he was humoring me, but he's like, oh, if you ever have an idea, just come and pitch me. And I was like, all right, I will. I came back with three ideas, uh, one of which he was like, there's actually something here. You should go work on this. And I did. And I was in university at the time. And so I think it was like over the, the, the winter break, came back uh, to California and actually got a, an audience and, and went through the whole pitch. And so I was like, this is what the show is. Here's how it's going to actually be produced. And actually, I went and did a lot of market research on how I really thought this was going to be a very lucrative commercially and had a lot of data points and talked to different people who were kind of like brand sponsors and everything else. But at the end though, it's just like, ah, you know, t- timing's kind of changed. Like they sold the company at the time. And so they said, uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're greenlighting less originals, but yeah, I really think you have something there. And that was that. So I think it came back again in the summer and I was actually talking to the person who gave me my first job when I was 12, like a summer job. And it was just, you know, interested to know what I was actually up to. And I kind of went through this whole journey. And he's like, so how, how much does it cost to kind of get the pilot done? And I think it was like 30000 at the time. We were sitting in his backyard, gets up, goes to the house, comes back and hands me a check for thirty grand. Wow. And I'm going home. My mom's like, turn around, go back, give him that money back. And it's like, no, mom, he actually said he was giving the money to me. He was invested in me. Yeah. And his whole thing was like, I, I want to be a part of your career and your journey. He saw that spark. He recognized it early on. Yeah. I mean, it's like such a kind of thing. It's like, I hope to kind of repay that and do that myself as well. I mean, I've, I've kind of done that sometimes actually hiring young people that maybe on, on paper, doesn't. but it's like, you see something mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, you'll be part of that. Like people took chances on me. You gotta, you gotta do the exact same thing. Yeah. So I think with that, then it was, I remember then calling back the, the station, uh, the TV company and they were all ears because I was now a client. And I was going to hire them to help me actually produce this pilot. And then I remember actually on one of the shoots, it was a, it's a lifestyle show kind of focused on like food and beverage in the San Francisco Bay area. And it was kind of meant to be like a weekend guide. So it was meant to air like a Wednesdays at 10 PM, give you ideas actually how to go spend your weekend, wineries, bed, breakfast, golf courses, new restaurant openings, things like this. How did it do? Uh, well, so we, we made the pilot and, uh, but it's like during, I remember during one of the, the shoots, I think it was at the restaurant. I remember actually Jim, who was the, the person that was backing me, kind of pulled me aside and he said, you know, I, I feel like you're so acting like the uh, like the employee. He's like, you're the employer. And he's like, look, if they're not doing it the way that you want, get in there and tell them. And because I was working with people that I always supported up until that point. And it's like, no, the table, like, it's turned. You are their boss. And I got lectured big time. But it's good. It was a good lesson and kind of, you know, from there and, and how to kind of adapt and to act more as a leader and a manager and it's just you got you got to stand up to the situation. 
So yeah, I had exposure, I guess, in that way to, I mean, that was an entrepreneurial kind of pursuit. Kind of came to the end of the summer, and then the sales group, I remember, was excited to go with me on a roadshow and go sell it. And I was like, oh, no, I actually have to go back to school. <laughs> um, and so I thought a lot of hard. It's like, wait, am I going to put off, like, my junior year of school and then stay put in California and actually go sell this? And I thought, like, no, nah, I got, you know, loans and obligations and other stuff. And so I handed it actually to uh, one of my brothers and had to kind of you know, carry the torch and kind of go off from there and it never went, never went anywhere. But wow, still, that. what a great story. But I think that is, yeah. there's a lot of just hands-on kind of experience of different things. And so, yeah, so that, that was like the entrepreneurial piece. But just going back to the company, I think you know, we think about like the investing in, in ideation. So one lane is where we're kind of driving the ideation. You recognize a need. You have in-house entrepreneurs or operators that launch a business based on what you recognize. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to also pick up on my first-hand experience kind of at YouTube where just the the size of the business today, there's certain things that are not bad ideas, just in larger scheme of things and prioritization, like they're just not going to go put engineering resource or go build something out. And so then it's encouraged or it's like find someone on the outside to actually go and do that. And so that's a space that we're kind of looking to play in. Second lane is kind of where the ideation starts with the creator. So these creator-backed ventures, uh, where they really are kind of the principal and the driver. And we want to you know, partner and empower. And, and we think there's um, great visionaries and, and entrepreneurs uh, you know, in this in this ecosystem. And uh, we want to identify them and, and back them. And then the third is where the ideation comes from more of uh, tech kind of entrepreneurs who are building kind of the, the next generation of the enterprise layer. So technology, tools, and services. And so the companies like Superbam that we've gone and backed or Stage 10 or Go Meta or Analyze Log, you know, we buy into their founder's vision and, you know, how we think that they're going to, uh, you know, strengthen the creator ecosystem, you know, help support it through, you know, long-term kind of growth and sustainability. Yeah. And so it's like by backing them or in turn supporting more creators and also, you know, what those companies actually do, we think, well, there's probably aspects of what they do that will help underpin and support some of these creator ventures that we're actually trying to stand up or some of the in-house ventures that we're actually trying to stand up. Like, we don't want to do everything. And so there's... You're building the infrastructure around it. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, what is the hardest part of being a first-time founder? The one piece I would say is, is prioritization. So, you know, we're, we're starting from scratch. So there's a lot, of, a lot of things you can do, a lot of directions you can go off and take. And, you know, I, I wasn't really expecting, but... I was kind of pleased to kind of see is when I you know, left the company and, you know, starting this up, I had a lot of outreach from people who had I supported over the years, reaching out saying, what can I do to help you? Hey, I didn't know that you were starting a company and raising money. I wish you would have told me I, I want to invest. How can I? Is it too late? Can I invest? So will there be a second um, fund? We, we, well, so we are actually working with different parties now where we're kind of we're co-investing. In, in, in different things. I was pleased to see that. Like the good problem that then we were having was we had a lot of inbound that I wasn't generally kind of anticipating. I thought like we were going to chart our own course and kind of go out and not actually have uh, as much inbound as we actually had. So I think that also just forced us to reflect again on our kind of roadmap and, you know, should we kind of deviate in, in any way? Should we kind of change some of the prioritization or if we keep hearing something now 10 times, well, the market seems to keep thinking something about us. And so should we listen to that or do we ignore it? Uh, and I kind of had advice kind of coming into this from someone who's worked with a lot of early stage companies who told me is that it's very important you listen to the market in your first year. He says, I've seen too many founders who were dogged on their 
strategy and approach, and they're just going down this path, and the market keeps saying, like, no, 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 it's this, it's this, and then they they, they run out of cash or something, and, and uh, then it's like, oh, yeah, should have actually gone down that path. So yeah, listen. that's kind of, yeah, yeah, I've kept that in my mind a lot in the past year, and just yeah, to kind of listen to a lot of the inbound, um, and not just be again, completely dictated or driven by that, but to kind of listen and, and reflect and in some areas, it's it strengthened kind of what we were already doing, or in some areas, it's given us new ways to kind of analyze the market and the opportunities in front of us. What's coming next? What does the future of the digital media and creator ecosystem hold? Yeah, yeah I think if I, I, as I said before, I, I have young kids who are nine, seven, and four. I look at their kind of media consumption, it's all digital kind of first. Think about their, you know, as they become direct consumers themselves, largely going to be digital first. Not going to be getting into a car, going down to a national store, and uh, you know my, my wife is Singaporean, and you know for her kind of growing up in Singapore, there was no concept of returns. She loves America for this, or like I could like she buys a lot through like Amazon or Target, tries things out, and it's like nah, it's so easy to return, and um, yeah, and so it's just I'm just going to do all this kind of consumption. The kids. You know, obviously, kind of see this. And I just think again, where this stuff is going in the next you know, 10, 20 years, new behaviors, and so I think there are some legacy businesses that are going to get, you know, continue to get disrupted. But there's also stuff I think with technology, and, and I think about this in, in my own kind of career and journey. Things that I was trying to try out back in 2001 at Yahoo with online video was just too early, or the infrastructure wasn't there. And you come now, and it's like oh, it's just so much better. And so in some ways, it's like what's old is new again. And I uh, think about that kind of a lot where it's like, wasn't a bad idea. It was just the time. And so kind of, should we re- rethink that kind of now? Uh, but I, I, again, I kind of mentioned the kids because I just think that is just the outlook. And so for next 10 ventures, it's about the next 10 years and kind of looking out. I used to ask creators kind of, how are they thinking about the next 10 years? And there's a little bit of a filter to kind of see you know, who has a vision for the future and is really trying to plan out more than a week or a month. And it's, a, it's I think when folks actually have these uh, maybe not 10, but it could be three or five, like it's infectious. And you start to kind of buy into it. You buy into the energy. You want to support it, at least I do. And it's like, that was the stuff that drove me a lot. And before it was like, oh, this is actually not my day job. And like, uh, it's actually not what I'm really employed by Google to kind of do. And here it's like, oh, we can actually make that the day job, uh, which is a lot of fun. There's a lot of new things to kind of to discover. And I think as an organization, because we have this fresh start, it's like, I'll see what, what is our purpose? What's our, our reason for kind of being? And yes, you know, we're a company that obviously needs to be kind of just, you know, economically sustainable. So we do need to think about the financials, but I think we've been thinking a lot in the last year, kind of just around like uh, positive impact. And then like, you know, how do we work with creators who in turn also have that kind of positive impact and you know, a lot of different categories that, you know, we can kind of go after. And we made a point of choice last year to start with kids and start with education and start with health and well-being. And so, you know, the first two, I had a lot of previous experience with it, as have some colleagues here. And then with, you know, health and well-being, I think it's both the you know, consumer market and, you know, I've seen this, you know, in my time kind of at YouTube, a lot of the, the value and the benefits there in that category. But I think we also think about the creator kind of health and well-being. And so if we say, you know, growth and sustainability, it's, it's also there, growth and sustainability. And several years ago, I had a lot of folks in my team started to kind of bubble up the issues around burnout. And so we were kind of on this like two, three years ago. And then thinking like, you know, okay, how are we as an organization, as a platform, are we helping to, are we actually driving more of this burnout? 
right? Because the economic incentives lead to create more content, which leads to more watch time, which leads to more advertising activity. Is this at, fundamentally at odds with the mental health and you know the the needs of a human creator? Look at this from a platform perspective, from a tech tech side, and just say, well, when when there's one creator who comes and then they go, there's another one kind of behind that. So don't get emotionally attached to anyone. They're all ones and zeros. It's all it's all just data, and I'm not going to humanize any aspect of this. And but I think yeah, when you kind of are working firsthand with creators, that's not obviously how it works. And I think with that, it's like no, I think there are our visionaries, our entrepreneurs, and you can kind of sift through that. You kind of want to kind of get behind that and not say like, ah, or your shelf life is only for the next 18 months. So let me just exploit this as much as possible for 18 months and then I'm on to the next. But rather actually, you can have a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year kind of journey. So actually, how do we think about it that way? And then how do we then kind of roll back and then start the planning to set that up? Now, maybe not everyone's going to play out that way, but maybe let's go in with the mentality of a longer term kind of view versus just take that short term and then you're kind of a commodity. And, you know, after I'm, I'm done with this, I'm, I'm on to the next. So it was like, that's not the kind of company we want to be. I think we we're very kind of pointed about that up front. And so then it's like, well, and also the, the kind of creators that we actually want to go work with uh, should kind of align. And so we think about, you know, there's creators that are great artists and storytellers. There's creators that are entrepreneurs. There's creators that are educators. There's those that are opinion leaders, and then there's those that are just really good promoters. And we've been more focused on the first three, the artists and storytellers, the entrepreneurs, and the educators. And we think about, okay, what investment programs do we design and develop that then cater to those three different groups? And we recognize the fourth and the fifth, but that's not our focus. One of the questions I've been dying to ask you, since you talked about your kids and, and your time working at YouTube on YouTube Kids, why didn't Google decide to launch YouTube Kids as a subscription video service? Because it's already a standalone app, right? Parents are have these brand safety concerns, and it's very hard to advertise to children. Why not just charge five bucks a month? It seems like any parent would be happy to pay that and know that their kids are browsing in a safe environment. I think if I go back to like the timing of what was YouTube Red, it's now YouTube Premium, and then also the launch of YouTube Kids, I think they were coming to be actually around the same time, but from two completely different product groups. And YouTube Red kind of being the first push for subscription, so catering for ads-free, background, offline, and then also collection of original content. I mean, also kind of uh, the, the link into the music service, uh, right? So for Google Play Music and then YouTube Music and, and all of that. So I think there was actually something in there where the project in the engineering team was really focused on the broader YouTube Red proposition. And then in parallel, you have this other product team that's building out this custom version of YouTube for kids. And there was also a separate team that was doing the same thing for gaming, actually at the same time. There was a gaming app product which has now been sunsetted and consolidated into YouTube. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is a different story. <laughs> um, but I think that that's where some of it actually was coming from. Yeah, then I think like the, the architecture of YouTube Kids is then slightly different from the architecture of the YouTube main. And then also it kind of ties in with like Google accounts. And then that's a that's a non-YouTube thing. That's a Google thing. And um Yes, something I think just has to come, I guess what I'm getting to is like organization design. And so just, yeah, the way that these things were coming about, it all wasn't coming from one common product group. It was actually, they were 
two, two different product groups ultimately fitting into the same product organization, but two different product groups with their own kind of roadmap and agenda. And I think at first it was, let's just go build a better experience for this younger market so they can browse effectively and watch the content they want. Yeah. And then kind of move maybe at some point down the line into an ads-free kind of proposition. And I think at that point, then YouTube Red was already transitioning to the YouTube Premium and a whole different thing. I don't know where it sits on the roadmap now. Yeah. And that kind of comes, I've heard this a lot. And uh, I think also back in the early days, there were there were a lot of folks who just use ad blockers or you see this in just comments and different things kind of online of like, you know, YouTube, I'll, I'll pay you, you know, X amount of dollars. Just give me it ads-free. I think this is one of the things that, like, hey, instead of all these people kind of using ad blockers, you know, would they kind of convert over and pay, you know, some nominal amount like per month, and then uh, and they monetize more effectively for YouTube. Oh yeah, and they have a better experience. Yeah, the RPMs are much better for the creators on the paid side of the YouTube Premium Red side than it is on the Avon. Yeah, much better economics, and so yeah, it's actually better for everyone if more people are actually on. YouTube Red Premium side from a monetization standpoint than it is actually on, on the AVOD, but it's just the AVOD consumer market is obviously so much kind of greater, but it's back to the kids piece. And there's a little bit there kind of an organization design and how that kind of came to be. Well, we got to wrap this up. So one final question for you, which is something I ask everyone who comes on the show. If you were starting a business in the digital media ecosystem today, what would you do? And obviously you are. But the thought is just, what's the white space out there? You work with a lot of entrepreneurs. What should they be thinking about? I, I would continue with what we're doing here at Next Ten Ventures. To be honest, I mean, it's uh, this month we're a year into it. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. I think there's a lot more for us to, to do and a lot more for us to do. And um, yeah, so I, I, there's a big space kind of in front of us. Uh, you know, this greater economy continues to kind of get larger year on year. And um yeah, I, I think, as I said before, there's more opportunity in front of us than we have, frankly, time, people, and capital resources to tackle. So that goes back to one of the challenges of just prioritization. So, like, what, what things are we choosing to kind of put our, our people and our time and our, our money kind of against? But I don't think we have any kind of shortage of, of choice. Incredible. Well, Ben, this has been so much fun. And I have a million more questions I could ask you about, you know, VTubers and India and YouTube's kind of next billion users acquisition projects. But we don't have time today, so we might have to do a part two sometime. Thank you for sharing your breadth of experience. It's fascinating to hear about your journey from a portal business at Yahoo to you know what you're doing at eBay and this marketplace concept to taking that to Turner and a broadcast environment and ultimately to Google and then launching Next 10. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.